Good morning, Grace. Got a little bit of a different setup up here, don't we? I originally thought I might make a joke about laying down there to take a nap while I'm preaching, but then I thought that puts me in the place of Jesus. I probably shouldn't do that. So probably better is if I get hungry, I'll just put my face in the trough and eat it for a snack because I'm, it's probably a lot of fiber in this. It'd be a good, um, so I move around a little bit. So we'll, I have some obstacles, but it'll be fantastic. We are opening our Bibles to Matthew. We're talking about Joseph today. If you don't have a Bible, there are ushers in the back that have Bibles. You can just lift up your hand. They'll bring you one. Um, if particularly you're visiting and you, and you don't, not only don't have a Bible with you, but you don't have one at home, we'd love for you to take that home with you. We'd love for you to have a Bible uh, to be continuing. If there's any hands, lift those up. We've got people in the back looking for you. Um, open your Bibles to Matthew, please. Matthew 1. We're talking about Joseph. Matthew is the gospel that does the kind of tells the story at this initial stage from the perspective of Joseph. Luke tells it a little bit more from the perspective of Mary. And so Matthew 1, starting in verse 18, is where we're going to read um, as we consider Joseph's story today. So Matthew 1, starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you for your word. Thank you for Joseph and the role that he played. It's tempting perhaps to see it insignificant or uh, to think of it not uh, as one of the major players. So God, I pray that you'll help us through the power of the Spirit to appreciate him and more importantly, the calling that he had to be telling the story of Jesus and preparing for Jesus, and it's the name of Jesus we pray, amen. So today we're considering our Advent series, Joseph and Joseph's story. And it struck me in the last couple of days as I've been thinking about this, how often Joseph, it seems to me, is kind of the forgotten person of the story. Maybe it's just me, but I think it's, I think it's pretty general that when we think of this Christmas story, we think of shepherds and we think of Mary and we probably even think of the wise men before we think of the role that Joseph actually played. And this actually gets acted out in my very own home. In our home, we have a little activity and we use this uh, play nativity set, um, which is so great because it's a little stable and then you pop it open and all the characters come bouncing out and... Um, so what we do in our family whenever we're doing some Advent readings is we set up all the characters and we read through Luke and Matthew and I feed my children lines and they read the lines out loud. Um, and so what that means is, is whenever we're doing this, 
Got to figure out. I always have a hard time determining who the shepherds are and who Joseph is. It's part of the problem. Oh, here's Joseph. Okay. So when we're doing the, at the nativity reenactment, the Oaks family advent Christmas reenactment, where I'm going to be, they're going to be grabbing a character and kind of I'm feeding them the lines and they say the lines of the character. So the children, you know, you can't just let children go or the strongest one always wins, right? We'll just defeat the others. And so I've got four children. So we have to figure out a way to get the children to be able to, for it to be fair and just. And so we basically, we have, there's no other way to do it. We have to form a draft. So the, the kids draft in order who their character is going to be. And they draft by who gets the most lines. So who gets drafted first every time? Who do you think gets drafted first? The angel gets drafted first every time. Think about it. The angel has a lot of lines. The angel gets to appear in every scene, right? The angel appears to Mary. The angel appears to Joseph. The angel appears to the shepherds. The angel's all the way there. Then once the, once the baby gets born, the angel gets to sit with the baby. So the angel's all the, all the time. So angel's the number one pick every time in our fantasy draft league for the nativity. Number two is typically Mary because Mary gets, if particularly depending on how much of Luke 2 we read, Mary does have a lot of lines because she gives this kind of awesome declaration um, right before as, as the angels talk to her. So Mary gets a lot of lines if we read all of those. Then surprisingly, like a surprising third pick is usually the three wise men. I think just because there's three of them, right? And actually you get, a, you get a camel too. So you get four things. I think that jumps it forward. And then number Four is always the shepherd, and we only have one shepherd, and if he had some sheep, he might bump into three, but he he's, doesn't have any sheep, so he's number four. And it's always, almost always, Joseph gets the last pick, and you kind of throw in the bonus the donkey, right? There's just, Joseph goes with the donkey. And there's two reasons for that. First of all, I think, when you think of Joseph in the Christmas story, you almost, if you don't think carefully, you almost think all he does is pull the donkey. Like, come on, here we go, Right? Isn't that Joseph's role in the story? At most, Joseph is kind of like a noble husband who's trying to find his wife uh, a room. But those are the, really the two things I think of when I think of Joseph. Joseph pulls the donkey and at most tries to find the room. And other than that, he's not in my mental imagery in the scene. Um, the other reason, but the primary reason that the children pick Joseph last is he doesn't have a single line in the Bible never says a word. In the passage that we just read, it's the Joseph passage. We'll bring Joseph over here. We're going to make Joseph highlighted today, so we'll set him right. He's going to fall down though, isn't he? Okay. In the passage that we just read, this is Joseph's passage. He still doesn't have a single line. Do you notice that? It tells us a little bit about him. The very end kind of is a line. It says, and, and he called his name Jesus. So the one line Joseph has at some point is, Jesus, which is, hey, that's a great line. If you're going to get one, that would be the one. But it seems like Joseph could have benefited from a publicist to me. Because Joseph played a pretty significant role, but yet as his story gets told, it seems to be minimized. In fact, Luke does Mary a lot better job than Matthew does Joseph, right? It, Luke gives us, it was Gabriel that came and talked to Mary. Joseph, Matthew tells us it was an unnamed angel in a dream right? 
That doesn't seem nearly as cool. You can imagine at a couple's party, and everyone's like, Mary's telling her story about literally talking to Gabriel. And they look to Joseph and say, Joseph, how was it when you talked to Gabriel? He's like, well, I'm I'm not really sure if it was Gabriel or not. He didn't really tell me his name or give me a business card or anything, so I'm not really sure. But you still, you, you like really talk to an angel. Yeah, it was a dream. Oh, so you didn't like, you didn't really like really talk to an angel then, did you, right? So you, you can see that the, the, the way it gets pitched to Joseph seems a little bit unfair, a little bit unjust. Mary gets the real angel. Joseph gets the dream angel. Mary gets listed in every story in Jesus' childhood. Joseph is, seems to be there, but he's hardly ever mentioned. When you think about the manger scene, right? The shepherds come. It says his parents were in there, so that's Mary and Joseph. But then Luke tells us Mary treasured these things in her heart. So what about Joseph? I bet he treasured something in his heart too. He doesn't get mentioned. Mary treasured these things in her heart. Then the next story that we have, they present Jesus at the temple, right? Both the parents are there. I knew that was going to happen. This is going to be here. We'll send him right here. So they present, they present Jesus. Both parents present Jesus at the temple. What happens? Simeon has something to say, and then he turns to which of the parents and speaks? Mary, right? Then you, I, as I was reading it, I thought he was finally going to get his first line. This was whenever they lost Jesus when he was 12 back in Jerusalem, and they're halfway out, and it says both parents are going back to get him, and both parents are looking for him, and they finally found him, and it's as if Joseph is about to, to step in and say something. And then right then Mary steps in and says, where were you? Your father and I were nervous for you. Right? No lines. Joseph gets no lines in the biblical narrative at all. Like he needs to get a story out there. Don't you think Joseph needs to get a story out there? Like maybe some some Facebook status updates or he needs to get on Instagram. There's something. He needs to get involved and get his story out there because Joseph's story is somewhat reduced. It's actually particularly telling. And obviously, Joseph doesn't care that his story's not out there. I'm caring about this more than he does. But Joseph spent at least 12 years with Jesus, right? Because we know he's with Jesus when Jesus was 12. Chances are much longer than that. All we know is that by the time Jesus' ministry begins, Joseph doesn't get mentioned again, which means most likely that Joseph has died somewhere along the line. So at least 12, maybe more years, no lines. Think about the disciples. Think about Peter. Peter spent less than four years with Jesus, and he has all the best lines, Like Peter would win the supporting actor role, right? He's got all the best lines, all the best stuff is given to Peter. And Joseph's sitting there saying, 12 years, 12 years, nothing. Now he's not really saying that, but he could, couldn't he? He's the forgotten person of this Christmas story. Well, let's look at the story itself because even though we don't get a lot about Joseph, we don't get any lines from Joseph, we certainly do get a lot about Joseph in what little that we have, and we have a lot that we can learn about Joseph. So look at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. The first thing that we see in the story is that Joseph is in for a surprise. God is changing the plans on Joseph, and God changes the plans on all of us all the time, but sometimes those plans change apparently for the better, and sometimes those plans change apparently for the worse. And this apparently is obviously the latter, right? This does not seem to be good news to Joseph. Joseph is 
married, he's betrothed. It's kind of somewhere in between being engaged and married, but it's much closer to marriage. It's basically an abstinent one-year marriage than it is really an engagement because if during this era, this timeline of betrothal, if the husband were to die, the wife would be considered a widow, right? She wouldn't just kind of move on and find another one. It's like, no, she is now treated as a widow because she's married. And so this is a committed relationship that they're in, one that sometimes there's some historical evidence that thinks that they might have even lived together in the father's, in, in the home of the father of the male. They're not, you know, there's conjecture, not sure about that. But, but yet there was, it was an abstinence era and time period of their, of their marriage before the actual wedding feast. And so this is the process at which Joseph is in. And Lo and behold, in this setup, he finds out that his future wife is pregnant with child. Can you imagine the discouragement and the disappointment? You talk about your, chain, your plans being changed and not for the better. He had to have had so many thoughts going through his mind. None of them positive, none of them encouraging, all of them. He could have easily said, God, what are you doing with me? Why is this happening to me? Wouldn't that be the typical kind of response that we all have when bad things apparently happen to us? One of the myths about Joseph, potentially, is we tend to think of Joseph as somewhat old, maybe even quite older. For some reason, I have no idea where this got in. I had been told or I, at some point that Joseph was probably something like 40 years old and Mary was much, much younger. Has anyone else been told something like that? Okay, a couple of you, who knows? We all went to the same church apparently when we were growing up. But in church history, it tells us that some church, some of the early church fathers said he was as old as 90 years old and he may have had a previous marriage where he had previous children. Now, the reason that they have this story told is because there is a, there is a, a teaching, not a biblical teaching, that Mary continued to be a virgin throughout her life, right? And this would make sense of these other brothers and sisters of Jesus as they are from a previous marriage of Joseph, but also could maybe make sense of Joseph was so old that that's why she continued to be a virgin. There's all these other kinds of things going on. But historians or the biblical study people now say most likely, most likely he was just a young guy. He was a young guy looking forward to a normal marriage with his young wife, Right? And I think that actually casts us to actually understand a little bit more about him, right? This is, a, this is a man, a young man with his life out in front of him, looking forward to spending that life. And he had written a story about what that life was going to look like, just like any young man does. He had written a narrative and what that included and what that didn't include. And one thing it certainly did not include was surprisingly finding out that his wife is, has a child. And then to find out to make the decision whether he is going to raise that child or not. Have you ever thought about that before? Some people refer to Joseph as Jesus' stepfather. I've ran into this a little bit in the literature, but it's really not true. It's what Joseph really is, technically, is Jesus' adoptive father. Joseph adopted Jesus. And theologically, that's really awesome to me because we know the Bible says a lot about adoption that we are adopted by God and we are joint heirs with Christ. But here we have Jesus, the baby, adopted by his earthly father. And the Bible is not at all worried to say this. The Holy Spirit has conceived Jesus. There's no Joseph DNA in Jesus. But at the same time, Jesus, Joseph is Jesus' parent. Joseph really is, according to the Bible, Jesus' father. That's adoption, isn't it? There's no, there's no need to apologize. It says the shepherds show up to the manger scene, to the stable, and his parents were with him. It doesn't say his mother and that other guy. 
It refers to Joseph consistently in the set of the parents of Jesus. Joseph played the role of dad to Jesus. He was an adoptive father. We'll talk about that a little bit later. I just think that in and of itself is pretty amazing. God changes all of our plans, doesn't he? God changed Rob Lister's plan this week. Rob Lister was going to preach this Sunday. He found out early Tuesday morning his mother had passed away. He had to make plans to get home. Uh, I got a text early and I volunteered to say, I can step in and preach. This happens to us all the time. Those are minor plan changes. But what we have to realize is, and God's changed many of your plans. I just look out and see some of you who have had major life plan changes in the last couple of years or last couple of months. And to realize Joseph, we can, we can walk with this with Joseph, right? Joseph had this major life plan get changed. His wife is now with child. He's not exactly sure what he's going to do. Now we start to learn a little something about the character of Joseph in verse 19. When her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. We learn two things about Joseph from this passage. First of all, from this verse... He's a just man. He's a righteous man. That doesn't just mean he's a good guy. That technically means he's someone who obeys the law. He follows the law. And that actually has a lot to say about this specific text. Because he's a just and righteous man, there are expectations of how he should respond when he finds out that his wife is pregnant with a child that's not his. Okay? What the expectations are when he finds this out is in Deuteronomy 24.1, the expectation is that he should divorce her. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, he writes a certificate of divorce for her. So Joseph, a young man, is a righteous man. For him to keep this righteousness, the law states he should divorce. Following that? Now, not only that, the law has other things to say as well. In Leviticus 20, it says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, let both the adulterer and the adulteress be put to death. Deuteronomy 22, 23, and 24 says, If there's a betrothed virgin, that's exactly what Mary's talking about, and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring out both to the gate of the city, and you shall stone them to death. So the just man Joseph is, the law requires A, that he should divorce her, and the law technically also says that someone in the state that she's in should be stoned. Now, we don't know exactly how widespread stoning in these kinds of events was during this time. It may be just because these occasions were not very common. But Joseph is on the horns of a dilemma because what we find out is not only is he a just person, if he was merely a just person, if the law was the only thing that he considered, this would have been an easy decision. But you see that not only is he just, he's what? He's compassionate. You see that? He considered these things, I'm sorry, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame. He resolved to divorce her quietly. His options were to to kind of divorce divorce her publicly, shame her and her family, um, and that would be the just thing to do. But the compassionate thing, he had another option, is to divorce her quietly with only a couple of people, two or three people. Allow the, the scene to kind of the the setting to kind of work itself out. And because he's compassionate and because he's generous and because he's gracious, you see Joseph actually choosing, that's where he's leaning towards, doesn't seem like he's going to divorce her quietly. He's leaning towards being both just and compassionate and gracious. Now, Luke tells us that, that Joseph was from Nazareth of Galilee. That's where they end up going back. Well, Nazareth's a really small town, about 500, 500 people. I don't know if any of you are small town people, but rumors run pretty fast through a small town. 
I grew up outside of a town of about 1,000 people. I checked the latest census. I think it was 936 people. Good thing we got that sixth one in there. You don't want to round down to 935. But 936 people in Texoma, Oklahoma. And rumors spread fast through a small town. Can you only imagine the rumors that were being told about Joseph and his wife, Mary? And then to add on top of that, Joseph's reputation was he's a young man most likely and he's a just man. He'll do the right thing. He'll do what the law commands. Why? Because he's righteous and because he's just. But yet because he's also someone who's compassionate, he's feeling the weight of this. Now fast forward. I, I find it fascinating actually. I just, something, this a little tiny comment in one of the comment, commentaries made me think about this. Jesus' primary problem with the Pharisees is what? Their lack of compassion. They're all about the law. They are just people, but they do not live it out with compassion and with love. And in Mark 3, we just saw the story where the man walks up to Jesus. He's got a withered hand, and it's on the, it's on the Sabbath, and Jesus gets frustrated. It says Jesus looks at the Pharisees, and he's angry at them. Why is he angry at them? He's angry because he sees that they, their lack of compassion. He asked, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent, and he grieved at their hardness of hearts. It's interesting. The Pharisees, according to Jesus, the problem of the Pharisees is all justice, all law, no mercy, no compassion. You wonder, you wonder if Jesus' own experience, now Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man. And since he's fully man, that means he spent years of his life being trained by a father, living in a home where what was modeled? Law and mercy <laughs> in the form of Joseph. It's as if jo Jesus was looking at the Pharisees saying, guys, you don't have to be this way. You can be a law person and a compassionate person. You can seek a compassionate way to live this out. You can live with mercy. And he was grieved at their hardness of hearts. He's not grieving that they love the law. He's grieving that they love the law and they do not love people. And he grows up in a home with a father who loves the law and seeks to be compassionate in how he lives it out. It's very interesting. The Bible tells us that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and nature. So we know that Jesus grew and, and, and learned. And Hebrews 1 says that he, he learned obedience primarily through sufferings in Hebrews 1. But there's no doubt that part of Jesus' learning these obedience is the, the role of his father in the home. If Jesus was sinless, that means he would obey his parents. That's commanded of them. If Joseph is a just and righteous man, that means he's going to train his children. That's what the law would command him. And it's just this interesting thought to think, wow, how much of Jesus and who he was actually was being taught to him by his adoptive father, Joseph. And yet he becomes the forgotten person in the story so often. So Joseph is in this dilemma. I love the law. I want to be just and righteous. I found an indecency in my wife. I'm called to divorce her. I'm going to do it with compassion in such a way that does not out her. I'm going to try to do this kindly. And then you get what? You get the dream. As he's considering these things, verse 20, an angel of the Lord appears to him in the dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. We have the dream. Joseph is told, don't fear. You need to marry Mary. 
Even though it seems like it's going to take a hit on your righteousness, it's not going to. Why? Because this child is not what you think it is. This is conceived by the Holy Spirit. God is at work here. And Joseph does what? There's this miraculous sort of obedience. Do you see this miraculous sort of obedience? When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord told him. It just seems like he wakes up. It's like, I'm supposed to marry her. All right, I'm going to marry her. In fact, we see this pattern of Joseph. Go to, verse, go to chapter 2. God continues to tell Joseph what to do through angels and dreams, and Joseph continues to obey. Look at verse 13. It's talking about when they go to Egypt. When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, said, rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. 14. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and he went to Egypt. <laughs> right? Look down. Verse 19 and 20. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. 21. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and he went to the land of Egypt. Joseph had remarkable obedience to God's word, didn't he? I just, you get the feeling that every night Joseph's going to sleep like, oh, I wonder what I'm going to do tomorrow. <laughs> but whatever it is, I'm going to do it because that's just who I am. I just, I'm the kind of person that I get a dream, it's from the Lord, and I just move on it, and I go. And you get this kind of beautiful picture of Joseph's role. Even if Joseph's job is nothing but pulling the donkey, he's doing what? He's protecting Jesus. Joseph's job, Joseph's calling at these moments are to protect the baby and ensure his safe arrival. Someone after the first service walked up and said, Joseph's kind of like the maintenance people and the cleaning people. You only notice them when they don't do their job, right? If Joseph had failed in his job, we'd have all noticed it. If he had failed to protect this child that was not his child, Right? If he had failed to get him out of harm's way and failed to take care of him and failed to teach him and failed to take care of him, protect him, we would, then we would notice. But we don't notice because he doesn't fail. So we can learn a lot of character traits. Right? That's one thing we can actually say, oh yeah, Joseph's so much, he's just, he loves the law. He's compassionate. And, and he's, he's an obedient person. And we, there's a way we can preach this passage. We could just stop there and say, hey, how do we make room for Jesus this Christmas season? Do those things. Right? Let's just kind of turn it into an ethics story. Let's, let's try to be compassionate. Let's be people who love the law. Let's be obedient. Let's have an invitation and we'll sign some cards and that's it. Right? But if we just end there, we're not really getting the whole story, are we? That's Joseph's story. But did you notice that really Joseph's story is only there for the bigger story, right? The bigger story is the story of Jesus. In fact, look at, at verse 18, how the whole passage is set up. This is a story not about Joseph, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus took place this way. Not surprisingly, but the passage doesn't say, here's the story of a man named Joseph. It says, here's the story of Jesus. And you get Jesus, Jesus, Jesus throughout the whole story, right? The whole dream is not about Joseph, the dream tells Joseph what to do, but the dream is about Jesus. He's going to come from the Holy Spirit. You're going to name him Jesus. He's going to save his people from their sins. That points forward, doesn't it, to what Jesus says himself in Matthew whenever he says, Matthew 20, 28. I didn't come to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. 
He's going to be Emmanuel. He's going to be God with us. This story about Joseph is your story plugs into Jesus' story. And even really Joseph's obedience of these dreams, this miraculous obedience I want us to emphasize well, it might have more to say about God and the power of God's word than it does about Joseph and his obedience, right? It could have a lot to say with you wake up and God has come to you in the midst of a dream and it has been so powerful and it has been so unshakable that Joseph is therefore willing to do things that will, A, look like they will affect his righteousness, mess up all the plans that he had written about what he wanted to have happen because the word of the Lord was so alive to him and was so powerful to him that he recognized, that's why I obey. I don't obey because I'm a good guy. Primarily, I obey because the word of God came to me powerfully and convinced me that this is what I should do. This is where I should go. So we see, we have this competing claim, don't we? We have the compete, there's something competing here. One thing that's, one part of what's competing is Joseph's story, right? That's why I was making the joke to say, Joseph needs a publicist. His story gets lost, doesn't it? His story just, his story is, we have to kind of mine it out a little bit. But then you realize, I don't think Joseph's going to mind that his story got lost. I don't think he's going to mind that he needs a publicist because Joseph's story is only a little story and he's here to tell the big story of Jesus. So Joseph's the man behind the scenes, getting Jesus to where he needed to be. Joseph seems to die before Jesus even gets his public ministry. But that was Joseph's role in the big story. Isn't it funny at Christmas even how our own little stories can take center stage, right? That we can kind of, even this is the time where we all want to be like Charles Dickens and think about others and altruism and gift giving. Even in our gift giving, it's easy to kind of put ourselves in center stage there. Like, I need to think of something to buy the kids. I ought to make a list for myself just in case someone asks me what I were to want. I mean, you know, I just saw, and then you'd end up, what, you spend more time thinking about your list. And it's just, isn't it funny how that this, this kind of Christmas gift giving season can actually turn back in this really weird way into my story is important. What I want is important. How I want Christmas to go is important. And it's actually, um, I've noticed a, a trend, or I, I thought I did, on, the, on radio. I listen to sports radio in the morning. It's one of my many weaknesses. And um, there's a new radio ad about a car. And it says, unashamedly, don't let the holiday season pass without giving yourself this car. Isn't that remarkable? <laughs> Like it's unashamed selfishness being promoted at Christmas. And it's, it's, it's not even a concern about it. It's like, hey, it's the holiday season. You know what that means? Don't let it get past without you doing something nice for yourself. And I, so I got interested in that. Are there other advertisements that have kind of been playing on this selfishness part of Christmas? And actually there is a, a fairly famous British ad campaign last year for Harvey Nichols, which I called Dr. Draycott to make sure that I understood this Harvey Nichols place well. Apparently, it's, it's very snooty, very posh, as the Brits would say. Um, department store of very, very expensive gifts. And so I'm actually going to show you this ad, and then I'll try to redeem the sermon after that if I can. But um, it's hysterical. The ad's placed is, the, the, the pitch of the ad is, we're going to sell, and they actually did at Harvey Nichols, small insignificant gifts. You'll see them. They're toothpicks and rubber bands and sink stoppers and other things like that. We're going to sell these small inexpensive gifts that no one wants to receive. And the, line of the, the name of the line is, sorry, I spent it on myself. 
at Harvey Nichols. So the idea is you come in and you buy something insignificant for your loved one and you spend the rest of the money on yourself at Harvey Nichols and, and give yourself a little treat that you don't give. And it's all tongue-in-cheek and it's kind of having fun. But it, the funny part about it is they sold out of the little gifts in three days once they did the campaign. Right? Now, whether people actually bought the expensive gifts or not, I don't know. That would be an interesting study to see if their sales generally jumped up or not. But watch this and just enjoy it, and then we're going to talk about our little story. So what's happening in each of those four scenes, in each scene, a gift is given, but the gift giver is wearing, usually, something that they bought for themselves. It's shoes first, so it's, it's things like toothpicks and rubber bands, things like that. And then the first is shoes, then a jacket, then a bag, and then a dress, and not to mention they're all incredibly gifted British actors, and we all love the British people, so enjoy this. Well wrapped as well. Yeah. <laughs> nice decoration. <laughs> Elastic bands. Elastic bands from Harvey Nichols, Dad. Sorry, I spent it on myself. Gift collection. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what the range is called. Plastic bang gift set. Yeah. Right. Two. Two? I got two. <laughs> oh. Oh. I do hope you haven't spent all your precious money on me, naughty boy. <laughs> Paper clips. Yeah. Harvey Nichols. Yeah. Yeah, they're from Harvey Nichols, so, you know. Harvey Nichols? I don't think anyone's ever got you anything from Harvey Nichols. Wow. Before, so. it's, it's toothpicks. Yeah. You love toothpicks. What is it? <laughs> it's a sink plug. Hmm? <laughs> a little something for them, a bigger something for you. All right, whether I can you. pull it back after that or not, we'll see. We'll see if we can pull it back after that. It's, that's one of those things I think that's funny because it rings true, doesn't it? It rings true that as we're giving gifts, we're thinking about ourselves. And just like the, 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 the car campaign, say, hey, don't let this holiday season pass without giving yourself something really nice, like a car. And Harvey Nichols is playing off of this saying, you know, buy these insignificant gifts for others and buy yourself something that you really deserve. And what's happening here? We are being told, and actually, this is one of those ads. This one's not shaping the way we think selfishly. This one's playing off the fact that we already do think selfishly. That's what I love about it, right? You can't blame this one for making us selfish. The reason it's funny, because we're already selfish, right? That's what makes it so funny. That's what makes it so good. And what's happening? We are saying, my story matters, right? My story matters. And we all want to do that. We all want to put ourselves on center stage. We are the ones that matter. We want our story to be told. And we want someone to tell our story. Who's going to tell our story? Well, who better to tell my story than me? I know my story better than you know my story. And I need to tell my story. And if I don't tell my story, who's going to? But Joseph is a great reminder of what? Joseph is unconcerned that his story gets out. 
Joseph understands his story is a little story. Joseph understands that the story he wants to tell is the big story of Jesus. And his little story only makes sense in light of the big story. If you told the story of Joseph without the big story, it would utterly make no sense, right? You've got this man. He finds out that his wife is pregnant with a child that's not his, and he takes him on and he has these dreams. Like, if you don't tell the big story of who Jesus is, Joseph's story seems to kind of uh, just promote Joseph. But Joseph's story only makes sense. In the midst of the confusion, Joseph could look up and say, God, while I once thought, why am I doing this? You have now revealed to me, I am doing this so that Jesus can arrive on the scene for his public ministry safe and trained and taught and having had an earthly father. My story now makes sense in light of the big story. You guys have important little stories too. Right? We all have important little stories. But what we tend to do is overblow the importance of our little stories. We tend to overemphasize our little stories and defend our little stories. And then that's what happens. That's when we start to get frustrated, isn't it? God, why did you bring this into my little story? And that's the whole point. We don't think they're little. We think they're really big. Why do I have to deal with this? Why does this make sense? This doesn't make sense. God, you're not doing anything. But what we have to realize is, you know what? If we consider our stories as just that, little stories... And the primary purpose of these little stories, just like Joseph, is to build into the big story of Jesus and how Jesus is working and bringing all into belief in him by faith. We realize my little story now makes sense only in relationship and in comparison to the big story. Sherwood Anderson's one of my favorite authors. He's a short story author. You may not be very familiar with him. He's a good example of how much we like to try to overemphasize our little stories. Sherwood Anderson, not a real well-known author, wrote three autobiographies. Three. That's interesting, isn't it? I don't even know. We don't have to say anything about that. But the interesting thing is there's something about us as humans that's tempting to write three autobiographies. But let's, let's not be sure what Anderson, let's be Joseph. Let's say, you know what? If I get recorded and don't have a single line and Peter gets all the good lines, even though he was only with Jesus for four years, I'm all about the big story. And I'm all about Jesus, and I'm all about making sure that Jesus gets his fame and that Jesus is glorified, not Joseph. Can you, there's no way Joseph is frustrated the way that I cast him at the beginning of the sermon, is it? There's no way even in Joseph's life he ever felt that way because Joseph knew his calling from the Lord, and Joseph was walking in that for the sake of the story of Jesus, for the sake of the big story. So I think that's our application. I think our application is not only there are some ethical applications here that we can learn from Joseph as we're seeking to make room for Jesus at this point of the season of, yeah, we want to be people who love the law. We want to be people who are compassionate and full of mercy. We want to be people who are obedient. But I think that the big landing here is let's be like Joseph and let's make our little stories only a smaller component of the big story of Jesus. And let's think well about our own little stories. And when, you're, when, you, when God changes your plans, surprisingly, and often what apparently is for the worse, put that into perspective and say, hey, Joseph walked a line like this, and Joseph was called to walk in it for the sake of the big story. And Joseph's life, when it started to crumble and fall apart, began to make sense only when he started to consider it in light of the big story 
of Jesus and the gospel. So I'm going to pray here in just a little while, and we're going to have a little more time today for some reflection, because I know that in some of your little stories, God has brought all kinds of shifts and turns and twists. And and so I want you to spend some time thinking about having the Spirit help you to think in terms of not your little story, but how it fits into God's bigger story. And what a better Christmas vision to think about other than Jesus, right? That's who we're supposed to be thinking about and how our role fits into Jesus rather than how we can fit Jesus into our stories. Our stories are ultimately Jesus stories in the same way that Joseph's story ultimately was a Jesus story. Let me pray for us. After I pray, um, we will have some more time. There will be a couple of people up front that will be wearing um, badges that would love to pray for you. I'll be up on this side as well. I'd love to pray for you as well, um, both now and as the service ends. Um, this could be a time where some people here may not even know who this Jesus is, coming back to church for the first time around Christmas time. And we would love to have an opportunity to talk to you a little bit more, not only about Joseph, but Joseph would want to talk to you about Jesus, and that's who we want to talk to you about as well. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I pray that you will help us to see the perspective of Joseph. That you will help us to see that our stories only make sense in light of the big story of Jesus. And while we are overly prone to be encouraging of ourselves and thinking of ourselves, particularly during this season, it's so easy to get selfish that we would be mindful more than ever in these next few weeks leading up to Christmas of the big story of Jesus and how our lives can reflect that, can glorify that, and can be settled with enjoyment of that. So we thank you for Jesus, and we thank you for Joseph. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.